We're going to talk about tonight making vows and making investments that last. So I heard about a man who bought a parrot. It was a beautiful parrot, but he had a really bad mouth. He could swear for five minutes straight without repeating himself. The man was embarrassed because of the bird, and it was driving him crazy in front of people. He tried to appeal to the bird by asking him to clean up his language. The parrot promised to change, but nothing happened. In fact, his swearing increased both in volume and frequency. It finally got to be too much, so the guy grabbed the bird by the throat and started shaking him and yelled, quit it! But this just made the parrot angry, and he swore more than ever. Then the guy got really mad, locked him in the kitchen cabinet. That really aggravated the bird, and he started clawing and scratching and making all kinds of racket. When the guy finally let him out, the parrot let loose with a stream of swear words that made the man blush. At that point, the guy was so ticked off, he threw him into the freezer. For the first few seconds, the bird squawked and screamed and thrashed around, but then there was silence. At first, the guy waited, but then he started to wonder if the bird was hurt. After a couple of minutes not hearing anything, he was so worried that he opened the door, and the bird calmly climbed onto the man's outstretched arms and said, I'm really sorry about all the trouble I've been giving you. I make a solemn promise and vow to clean up my language from now on. The man was astounded. He couldn't believe the transformation that had come over this parrot as a result of being in the freezer for only a couple minutes. The parrot then turned to the man and said, I just have one question. What did that chicken do? <laughs> so tonight we're going to talk about making vows. We don't want to end up like the chicken. You see, vows are promises that people made to God in Nehemiah 10. You know, while they weren't thrown in the freezer, they did feel the sting of God's spoken word in chapters 8 and 9. After hearing what God wanted from them and owning their own persistent rebellion, verse 38 of chapter 9 says that the people made a binding agreement to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. As a matter of fact, Nehemiah 36 through 38 says, Behold, we are servants this day, and for the land that thou gave us unto our fathers, eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof. Behold, we are servants in it. So this land that we were supposed to be in, that we were supposed to receive the goods from, that we were supposed to rule over, we are now servants in that land. It says, and it yieldeth much increase unto the kings whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. Because we didn't keep those vows, because we didn't follow those commandments, they ended up like the chicken. It says, also they have dominion over our bodies and over our cattle, at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. So think about that for a second. The, they went through a few different steps there, and really, if you want real change in your life, you have to put God where he belongs, like they did. You have to admit that, hey, I have a problem. It's not something outside of me. It's not some force that's inflicting upon me. It's me. I have to change. Then you have to surround yourself with people who have the same goals that you have. It wasn't just one person that decided, hey, I'm going to make a covenant with God and this thing's going to get better. 
as a group, as a community, they came together, united, and said, this is what we need to do as a people to be where God wants us to be. The law governing oaths and vows is found in Numbers 30 and 2. It says, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by pledge, he must not break his word, but do everything he said. Ecclesiastes 5 and 4 says, when thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that, that's, that's strong. If you defer to pay your vow, if you defer to keep your word, if you say you're going to do it and you don't, the Bible very plainly says God takes no pleasure in those fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Since an oath involved the name and the possible judgment of God, it was not to be taken lightly. Jesus also warns against using empty oaths in Matthew's, Matthew 5, 33-37, which says, Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time. Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. For I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil." So what the scripture is saying is you shouldn't swear on anything because it's not yours, not even your own person. We were all bought with a price. When God died on that cross, when he shed that blood, he paid that debt of sin. We were all born into sin, so we are not our own. We owe a debt to God that we cannot pay. So for us to swear upon our own life, we're making a swear that we can't even hold our own bargain to. We don't have control. We don't own ourselves. We are children of God. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. The Bible contains many examples of peop people making vows and covenants with God, only to break them later on. In Exodus 24, the Israelites promised to do everything the Lord said. But in less than six weeks, the same people construct a golden calf and bow down and worship it. In Mark 14 29, Peter promises Jesus, even if all fall away, I will not. So even if everybody else denies you, Jesus, I will never deny you. Of course, we know how that ends. Hours later, Peter responds to his servant's girl's questions by swearing in verse 71. It says, he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you are talking about. So that leads to a question. Are vows of any use today? Well, I think they are for a couple reasons. First, they help us focus. When you make a vow, you're saying that you are going to do something specific. We can say, Lord, I need to witness more, or we can say, I need to invite my neighbor to service next week. And I'm going to give him a book that will help open up a conversation with him. Secondly, vows allow us to express our love. That's why couples make vows during a marriage ceremony. They're the language of love. Love is more than just a feeling. It's a commitment or promise to be married until death do us part. You see, God is a covenant-keeping God. Even when we don't keep our end of the deal, you see, you may have made some promises to God in the past that you haven't kept. You may have broken some vows, and if you have, you're certainly not alone. Jeremiah 31 and 32 says that God's people broke the covenant on a regular basis. Verse 33 says that he will one day make a new covenant in which he says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Jesus inaugurated this new covenant. In Mark 14 24, he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. In the old covenant, we're expected to live up to our end completely. 
Everything came from us. And it's talking about the Old Testament. They lived by laws. If you wanted to be saved in the Old Testament, there was a list of laws, and you had to live by that. If you lived outside of that law, there was no salvation. Salvation was 100% on keeping with that law. But under that new covenant, it's grace and it's mercy. Now, does that mean you can do whatever you want? No, it doesn't. Of course not. It's still a relationship with Christ. We're still making vows to Christ. We're still being devoted and dedicated to Christ, but we're no longer under that law. And because of that, when we were under the law, it was up to us. The covenant was, was on our end. We had to keep our covenants with God, but now that we're under grace and mercy, it's God's covenants down to us that he will always forgive us. He will always be there for us. He will always lift us up when we need it. That is what we live under now. Nothing comes from us, and everything comes from Jesus. Because of his grace, we can surrender, submit, and obey out of love, not out of fear. Thank God for his grace. While it may be helpful to make a vow or an oath to God today, remember this. We don't succeed as Christians because we make promises to God, but because we believe the promises of God and act upon them. Think about that. So we're not successful out of our own might. It's not successful out of our own vows, out of our own promises. We are successful because of what God promised us, a life more abundant. Having said that, many of us never come to the point of getting serious in our walk with God simply because we never get specific with him. We hear sermons and sense the Spirit's tug at our heart, but until we decide to be completely committed to him, we won't be. You know, I used to teach young people, what I would tell them is the devil isn't afraid or even concerned about you sitting on a pew in a church. He isn't worried if you just show up and sit there and listen. He isn't worried if you just show up and don't get involved. He's not going to worry about that at all because he, honestly, he really doesn't care. Now, if you make a commitment to God and you take that next step and say, hey, I'm not just here for fun. I'm taking this thing seriously. I'm going to get involved in the church. I'm going to give more of my time, give more of my resources. Then you get his attention. So I invite you to think through any decisions that the Lord wants you to make. Perhaps you've been challenged or convicted by the Lord during this series. Listen to him and decide to put things into practice because we know what we need to do. The first vow we're going to talk about tonight is submission to God's word. As a result of hearing God's word, the Israelites made four decisions. The first one is found in verse 10 and 29. It says, all these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. They were totally serious in their desire to devote themselves to everything that was spelled out in the Bible. Whether it was for better or worse, we're going to do what God has commanded. So who does God use to make an impact? Is it super saints? Is it heroes? Is it the religious elite? Not at all. In 2 Chronicles 16 and 9, it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein thou hast done foolishly, therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars. So who's God looking for? The people whose heart desires him, whose heart desires his presence, whose heart desires to seek his face. The key is devotion. We need to remember that the depth of our devotion determines our impact. And I'll say that again because that's a powerful statement. The depth of our devotion determines our impact. If you want to impact your community, if you want to impact your family, your friends, there has to be some devotion. If you just want to impact your own life, let's start small. 
there has to be some devotion. Devotion to reading scripture, praying, spending time meditating on God. You have to devote your life. God's not looking all over the earth for strong people, for great people, for perfect people, or even for religious people. This morning, as he looks through the congregation this, this evening, he's looking for devoted people, for men, women, boys, and girls who are fully committed. He's looking for a regular person who he can pour his strength out on. And in order for that to happen, we need to be completely committed and dangerously devoted. You know, God doesn't look for qualified people who know how to speak, who know how to act, who know how to talk. He, qual- he calls the people who are willing to follow him. And then he gives you the strength to do the things he's called you to do. Because without faith, God can't operate. So if you already know everything you need to do for that next step in your life, it's probably not God. If you're not uncomfortable about where you're being led in the spirit, it's probably not God. If you are uncomfortable when you're being led and you're willing to walk out in faith, God will lead you. He will not let you walk off that cliff. He will give you the strength. He will give you the power that you need to do what he's called you to do. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, is once asked, what is his secret to the incredible ministry? And this is what he said. He said, God has had all that there was of me. There have been men with greater brains, but from the day that I got the poor of London on my heart and caught a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with me and them, on that day I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth that there was. Nehemiah chapter 10 verse 29 says, They clave to their brethren, their nobles had entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law. So the people are saying that they are so seriously submitted to God and his word, they're willing for those curses if they do not carefully obey what he says. That's true devotion. I wonder if we have the same submission and dangerous devotion today. Are we willing to give God all of us for better or worse? Vow number two is separation from the world. After submitting themselves to God and his word, the believers make a second vow to be a separate people from the world. In verse 28 and 30, it says, We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or to take their daughters for our sons. When you think about it, that separation is really just total devotion to God, no matter what the cost. When a man and woman get married, they separate themselves from all their possible mates and give themselves completely to each other. We separate from others to the one who is our life mate. The Israelites separated from the peoples around them into God and his word. And this was not about ethnic pride or a sense that the Israelite gene pool is superior to anyone else. Rather, it had to do with how they worshiped God and honored him. Wrong relationships can nullify nullify a believer's distinctive witness. God wanted his followers to be a missionary people, and so it was vital that their message not be corrupted. In declaring this prohibition, the Lord was concerned about both the purity of their faith and the holiness of their lives. They had been entrusted with the most wonderful message in the world, and nothing was to be allowed to corrupt it. And there are at least two reasons why these marriages were considered disastrous. First, there are clear biblical warnings. When two people in the ancient world made a marriage agreement, they normally confirmed their commitment in the presence of their gods and gave each other idols a prominent place in their new home. Joshua 23 and 13 says that heathen spouses will become snares and traps for you, whips on your back and thorns on your eyes. Do not look at your wife. Secondly, there are many biblical examples of unequally yoked marriages that led to a decline in Israel's spiritual and moral life. Nehemiah 13 26 asked the question, was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? 
Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. You see, we are more influenced by other people than most of us care to admit, and mixed marriages were a danger then, they're a danger now. And what I mean by that, you know, I want to be clear. I know some of, some of you are married to unsafe spouse. My mom comes to church. My dad's Catholic. Two different viewpoints, right? My dad's not a bad person by any means, so I'm not talking down at all. I respect and I applaud your commitment to Christ and your determination to live out the teachings of the Bible. But this is focused more towards those who are not married yet. Perhaps you're dating someone who's not believed the same as you. It may seem harmless to date a non-Christian, especially if you're a teenager, but we have to be careful. God cares about your spiritual life, and he cares about your ability to be a clear witness for him. On the authority of God's word, don't deliberately disobey in this area. The question is not, will this relationship work? Or that shouldn't be the question. Will this relationship enjoy God's blessing and fulfill God's will? That's what we should be asking. I know it's not easy to hear, but if you're truly submitted to God and his word, you will honor him in all your relationships as well. If you put him first, don't enter a relationship with someone who does not also put the Lord first. You know, when I taught young people, I taught, I taught on dating within the church and whatnot, I explained it like this. Man can only have an intimate relationship with one other being. You see, when you get married, you become one flesh. That's biblical. That other being always has to be God. That is the only person we can have a relationship with. Because you can't serve two masters. Vow number three is the Sabbath for God's people, keeping the Sabbath. After pledging themselves to submit to the word of God and to live separated lives, the believers renew the covenant with a third vow. Verse 31 says, when neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working in the land and we'll cancel all debts. I wish we still did that. Every seventh year, we don't work, we cancel all debt, we're good to go. Sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> you see, in Nehemiah's time, it was necessary for God's law about the Sabbath to be clearly understood. First of all, this was a day set aside to honor God, first and foremost. It was distinctive from other days and was given to God so they might offer their worship to him but without being distracted by the demands of everyday life. Secondly, it was a day of rest. Relaxation is a vital ingredient in effective living. Anybody ever been burnt out at some point or another? Relaxation is important. God set this pattern for, for us in Exodus 20 and 11. He rested on the seventh day. The Israelites worked with no breaks in their weekly schedule when they were slaves in Egypt, and God did not want this ever repeated again. You know, there's a story of one man who challenged another man to an all-day wood chopping contest. The challenger worked very hard, stopping only for a brief lunch break. The other man ate a leisurely lunch and took several breaks throughout the day. At the end of the day, the challenger was surprised and annoyed to find that the other guy had chopped a lot more wood than he had. I don't get it, he said. Every time I checked on you, you were taking a rest, yet you chopped more wood than I did. To which the winning man replied, didn't you notice? I was sharpening my axe when I sat down to rest. You see, if you're feeling a bit dull today, perhaps you need to schedule some rest into your schedule so you can get sharp again. Thirdly, it was a day to help others. Israelite employees had a compulsory rest day automatically written into their employment contracts. This helped others enjoy the blessings of rest. You see, we're not here just for ourselves. We're here to help each other out, especially within this church body. I would like to think, and I know that I have friends in this building, but I like to think we all have friends in this building that we can call when we have needs. 
whether that's a physical need, an emotional need, whatever it might be, there should be people in these four walls who are willing and who have time to help us out in those times. Fourthly, the Sabbath was a day to declare the truth. It was a silent witness to God's supremacy and gave the Israelites multiple witnessing opportunities. To their unbelieving neighbors, it proclaimed in very practical terms the truth that God comes first. This is an important paradigm or model for us today. From the very beginning of the church, Christians made the Lord's day their appointed day for worship, rest, service, and witness. While avoiding the legalism that the Pharisees fell into, most of us can do a much better job of looking for ways to keep Sunday special. The Israelites also promised to observe the sabbatical year. Every seventh year, they were, let, they were to let the land idle so it might restore itself. To obey God this way is certainly needed to trust him with their needs during that seventh year. It seems to me that obedience to God always involves trust. It always involves faith. We cannot always see what's coming up, but if we're doing what God says, he will never disappoint us. Their commitment to commemorate the Sabbath year was a great step of faith and, a beautiful, and is a beautiful illustration of Matthew 6 and 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Notice that they also canceled all debts in verse 31. How could you not notice? They promised that every seven years they would live out a renewed scale of values that people matter more than money. The keeping of the Sabbath and the sabbatical years were ways of saying no to a life of maximum acquisition. My highest goal is not to make the most. It's not to be wealthy. It's not to be rich. It's to spend my life trying to keep everything that I have and to bless others with what God has given me. Vow number four is support for God's work. It leads into their, it's their fourth pledge. It's support for God's work, and it's in verses 32 through 39. The phrase house of our God is used nine times in this section and refers to the restored temple. The people were promising to follow God's priorities by submitting to him, by separating from the world, by keeping the Sabbath, and by supporting the work of God. Verse 39 sums up their commitment. We will not neglect the house of our God. The temple in Jerusalem stood at the heart of the city's religious, moral, and spiritual life. In symbolic terms, it proclaimed the presence and power of God among his people and the centrality of spiritual matters. This passage covers an impressive series of promises to support God's work in a variety of different ways and gives us seven insights into how our giving can support God's work today. Number one, they practice responsible giving. In verse 32 and 35, they say that they assume the responsibility they owned it. They said, it's on me. I have to give because if I don't give, no one will. Number two, it was obedient giving. They didn't just give whenever they got the impulse, whenever they felt they should, but they gave on a regular basis out of obedience. There was nothing remotely, remotely optional about support of God's work. Everyone was required to give in one form or another. And it was just another way to demonstrate that God comes first in our lives. Number three, it was systemic. There was nothing haphazard about their giving. In verse 32, they put a system in place. It says they were to bring a third of a silver shekel each year. Verse 34 states that lots were drawn to determine when families were to bring a contribution of wood at set times each year. Verse 35 tells us that the first fruits were brought each year. There was an orderliness about these offerings and a system that was followed. The people knew exactly what was expected of them. The New, the New Testament teaches systemic giving as well as 1 Corinthians 16 and 2. It says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Number four, it was proportionate. 
The reference to the wood offering suggests that many poor people in Israel had an opportunity to make a gift to the Lord that would demand their time rather than money. You see, giving isn't always about money. It's not always about what we have. It's about what we can do for the church. We can volunteer our time. We can help out. We can come to work days. All those things count in our giving to God. In addition, addition, Israel's sacrificial system recognized they couldn't all do the same kind of offering. If they could not afford the cost of a young bull, a male goat or lamb, they were able instead to offer two doves or young pigeons. If they could not afford that, it allowed them to bring some fine flour as an offering. It is not the amount that is given that's important. It's in the spirit in which we make our offering that's important. We should not give, we should give in proportion to how we've been blessed. The New Testament echoes this principle in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Number five, it was sacrificial. They were looking to bring to God's house the first fruits of their crops and of every fruit tree. To offer the first of their crops is to declare that God was the giver of all things and everything belongs to him. You know, just like God gives us our talent and our abilities to walk and to lead in his scripture and to bless others around us, I believe that God gives me my talents and abilities just to be successful in life. I don't believe that anything I have is because of me. I believe it's because of God's favor on my life and because I've devoted my life to God. So with that being said, I don't ever want to think that the proceeds and what I gain, what I gain because of the blessings God has given me are mine. First, they belong to God, so I want to make sure I honor God by giving to him first. Then I will use what's left for my family and to bless others as I can. It was also a comprehensive giving plan. They were not only to bring their crops and their money, they were to also bring their firstborn sons and their animals to the Lord in verse 36. Nobody's asking you to bring your kids. Please don't bring your kids to the church. <laughs> bring your kids home with you, please. God's not just interested in our money, and that's the point that I'm trying to make. He wants our whole hearts. Actually, he wants all of us. He wants everything. Tithing can be a great blessing. I practice it, and I recommend it highly. But there are a few dangers to consider because it's very easy to give with the wrong motives. We can give out of a sense of duty, fear, or even greed, thinking that if I tithe, God must bless me or thinking that we can do whatever we want with the amount that remains. Giving only in tithe and failing to give a love offering to the Lord is dangerous because it has to be a sacrificial giving. If we only give what's easy and we never give beyond, if we never give what stretches us, whether it's in time, talent, treasure, whatever it is, then we're not meeting what God is asking us to do. On the 31st of October, In the year 2000, a Singapore Airlines jumbo jet crashed on takeoff, killing 83 people. Investigators determined that the jet was on the wrong runway when it tried to leave for Los Angeles. The pilot realized at the last moment that he was on a strip closed for repairs and plowed into some heavy construction equipment. Seconds before the jetliner crashed, caught fire, and broke into three sections, the pilot screamed out, there's something there. Apparently, the pilot knew what runway he was supposed to be on, He was not misdirected by the control tower. However, the officials admitted that there was no barrier set up to block planes from going onto the closed runway. In addition, the lights on the runway were turned on because of bad weather. So I'm wondering this evening if anyone here might be on the wrong runway. You know, it might look like you're going down the right path, look like everything's right in life, but you might actually be headed for a crash. The Bible's very clear. If we do things our way, 
if we take our future and we put it in our own hands, if we make our decisions based on our own knowledge and we don't seek God's direction in our lives, we're headed for disaster. God wants us to make investments that last. You never see the word investments, I, I think, to my 401k, which if you have one, please don't look at it. It'll make you sad. But it makes me consider investments that actually matter, investments that are actually important. My family, this church, investing, just spending time with God in prayer and reading scripture, investments that last, that always have a positive benefit. Here's another way to look at it. If you could look at a person's friendships, their calendar, and their checkbook, you could probably determine whether or not they are fully submitted to God and completely committed to his cause. We don't have to stand tonight, but we could all just close our eyes and pray for a second. God, help us examine our lives. Help us take a look around. Give us a reality check. Are we on the right path? Are we on the right runway? God, are we heading in the direction that you have for our lives? Are we, do we have our feet planted solidly in your word? Or are we headed for disaster? Lord, if we are headed for disaster, God, I pray that you open our eyes. Help us to see what it is that we're doing wrong in life. And God, please help us get on the right path. Guys, I love y'all. I hope y'all got something out of this lesson tonight. I just want everybody to remember, let your yes be yes, let your no be no, and don't be afraid to make commitments to God. Don't be afraid to step out, put yourself out there and say, Lord, I'm going to do more for you, and be specific. Say, this is the thing I'm going to do for you. We're going down.